Revelation. And we come today to uh, chapters 15 to 16. So before we look at this further together, uh, let me pray for us and ask for God's help to understand his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, letter, uh, the letter of Revelation. And as we reflect on it today, uh, help us, we pray, to clearly understand what it's saying. And may it speak in a living and active way into our world and into our lives. Uh, And may it also encourage us, therefore, to continue to live as your people, as we wait for uh, your final judgment and the renewal of all things. Amen. Uh, So let's start by way of a little brief recap. Uh, During this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we have seen, of course, chaos on a global scale. And yet when we read the book of Revelation, we find that we are actually led to expect this. Uh, Revelation paints a picture of life between the first and second comings of Christ. And the world is a place of turmoil and upheaval. Yeah, as we saw last week in Revelation chapter 6, ultimately, God is the source of this turmoil. Uh, God not only permits it, but he actively sanctions it. It is part of his judgment. Uh, Last week, we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and we saw that they brought disaster on the earth at God's bidding. God uses this affliction to fulfill his purposes. Firstly, he punishes rebellious humanity, and secondly, he purifies his people. Hence, the COVID-19 pandemic can be viewed as part of God's judgment on a rebellious world. But we saw last week, and this is an important caveat, is not to say that those who die are more sinful than those who survive. Rather, it's part of God's general global judgment. So the theme of God's judgment continues today in chapters 15 to 16. Uh, We come now to the seven plagues, and these plagues occur upon the outpouring of the seven bowls of God's wrath. And in these chapters, uh, we are confronted not only with the judgment of God, but also with the character of God. And as we will see, understanding the character of God is vital if we are to ever correctly understand the judgment of God. Now, before we look more closely at chapter 16, uh, we need to pull into the lay-by for a moment and consider a few important principles about how to understand and interpret the book of Revelation. There's a few things we need to get clear in our minds. Uh, Firstly, uh, we must be careful to apply the most basic rule for interpreting any document. We ask that question, what type of literature is this? And the answer to that question shapes how we then interpret it, how we understand it. So uh, I would interpret uh, a book of Wordsworth's poems in a different way to if I was reading the Daily Telegraph. Uh, One is poetic literature, and the other is news report, although some may dispute that. Now, the book of Revelation is what is called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature uses symbols and imagery to convey its message. 
therefore not everything in it should be taken literally. So today, as we look at the seven plagues, we will see that each plague uses vivid and shocking language. Uh, each plague describes different forms of suffering and disaster, and yet we must be careful not to slip into taking it literally. This is apocalyptic literature. Uh, a second principle uh, we need to bear in mind. We must beware interpreting revelation too chronologically. Uh, biblical scholars have noted a, a cyclical structure to the book. I actually think it's most helpful to view revelation as consisting of seven sections which run parallel with each other. Uh, the main visions of the book, uh, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath, are not necessarily describing different events. Rather, they're describing the same events, but from different points of view. Uh, each provides, if you like, a different camera angle on the church and the world between the time of Christ's first and second coming. So you see, we should not read the seven sections as if there is this linear chronological progression from one section to the next. And this is not only true between the sections, but also within them. Uh, for example, in chapters eight to nine, there are seven trumpets. But the events of the third trumpet do not necessarily come after those of the second trumpet. However, uh, we must not throw out the baby with the bathwater, because this is not to say that there is no chronology in Revelation. If you were to look more closely at each of the seven sections, each finishes with the end of the world. And so in that sense, there is a progression. Also, uh, when we come to the seven plagues and the seven bowls here in chapters 15 to 16, they are introduced with a significant chronological marker. Look again at chapter 15, verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is complete. You see, with the advent of these plagues, we enter the home straight of God's judgment. They are the last plagues because with them, God's wrath is complete. The end of world history is near. Uh, also with the seven plagues, there is a shift in gear. Uh, with the seven plagues, the gloves now come off. The scope and intensity of the judgments they bring peak. Uh, for example, uh, there is this remarkable similarity between the judgments of the seven trumpets in chapters 8 to 9 and the seven plagues in chapter 16. But there is also a significant glaring difference. The disasters of the seven trumpets befall a third of the world. Uh, that phrase, phrase, a third, is repeated throughout those seven trumpets. You see, they are limited in their extent, but with the plagues, there is no such limitation. 
The plagues in chapters 15 to 16 are global. There is an intensification of God's judgment. So uh, let's look now at the judgments of God conveyed by these seven plagues. And of course, uh, the term plague is not used in that narrow sense of a viral outbreak. Rather, plague refers more broadly to these catastrophic, disastrous events. Uh, just as in uh, the seven plagues suffered by the Egyptians in Exodus in the Old Testament. So what we're going to do is we're going to move fairly quickly over the judgments of God, the plagues, because we also want to leave time to reflect on the character of God and then the human response. So firstly, then, uh, the judgments of God and these seven plagues, uh, which occur as a result of the pouring out of the contents of seven bowls. Let's look at the first bowl, at chapter 16, verse 2. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Uh, we're told here the affliction falls on those who bear the mark of the beast. Now, in Revelation, uh, that is language for anyone who is not trusting in Christ. They are outside of God's people. They are a member of the people of the beast, which, of course, is Satan. And in some way, uh, those who bear the mark of the beast also now bear marks on their bodies. We're told they have terrible sores. Uh, it is reminiscent of the sixth plague, plague that God sent on Egypt. So the question is, uh, are these sores literal? And we need to remember, of course, that this is apocalyptic literature. It is metaphorical imagery. At the very least, the language seems to convey a link between the mark of the beast they carry and the mark on their bodies they bear. Uh, maybe the point is this. In the midst of their sin, they will experience awful consequences that indicate an appropriate judgment from God. Uh, the punishment will be seen to fit the crime. Uh, moving on, at uh, the second and the third bowl. Uh, when the second and the third bowl of God's wrath are poured out, uh, the waters of the sea and the inland rivers turn to blood. Uh, here again is another echo of the Egyptian plagues. Remember when the Nile turns to blood. And now some people uh, do see this as a literal attack on the world's water supply. Uh, some people do suggest that maybe it refers to devastating droughts or a, a global red tide algae bloom that discolors and pollutes the waters. Here again, I think we need to be cautious about being too literal. Maybe the link back to the Egyptian plague on the Nile is helpful in guiding interpretation. Remember, the Egyptians were totally dependent on the Nile to support their lives and their livelihoods. Water was essential for life then as for now. So it may be that these plagues refer to some forms of afflictions or disasters which undermine the very viability of life. 
that may include environmental disasters. The point is people suffer and people die. Everything grinds to a halt. Uh, economies flounder, stock markets freefall, great global depressions loom. Uh, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Let's move on to the fourth bowl. When the fourth bowl of God's wrath is poured out, the sun is given the power to scorch people with fire and intense heat. As with the sea and the rivers of blood, uh, we should guard again against being too literal. Uh, the intense heat may well be the heat of circumstances which bring severe distress and agony. And that could include uh, economic or natural catastrophes. Moving on to the fifth bowl. Uh, the fifth bowl is poured out on the throne of the beast. And this bowl brings darkness. This plague is particularly focused on the seat of authority. It is poured out on the throne of the beast. And we know, of course, that Satan uses governments and organizations to further his dark purposes. And so now, in this plague, darkness comes on them. A, in all likelihood, uh, it is speaking of them being condemned to spiritual darkness. Uh, they slip further into their depraved thinking and behavior from which there is no return. And when the sixth angel pours out his bowl, uh, he dries up the river Euphrates and he opens up the way for the kings to come from the east. In the sixth bowl, uh, the nation... Uh, this, the angel brings this catastrophe. But what does it mean? What is this, the imagery and the, symbol, the symbolism of this river Euphrates drying up, making way for the kings to come from the east? Well, remember that the nation of Israel greatly feared the kings from the east because it was the empires of the east that had conquered and enslaved God's people. Firstly, Assyria. Uh, then Babylon, and after that, Persia. So the sixth bowl is symbolically pointing to the final conflict between God's people and God's enemies, Satan's forces. And sure enough, with the outpouring of the sixth bowl, demonic spirits are directed by Satan himself to, in the words of verse 14, to go out to the kings of the world, to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. They are gathering for what is called the Battle of Armageddon. And that is a symbolic name for this final event where the nations of the world gang up against God's people for a final onslaught. The church will be assaulted and heavily outnumbered. It will appear that all is lost, and yet the Battle of Armageddon will be the battle where finally the tables are turned and God's enemies will be destroyed. Looking then at the seventh bowl. At the first six bowls all build to the seventh and final bowl. 
And when the seventh angel pulls out the bowl of God's wrath, the time of God's final judgment is announced. Look at verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl onto the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. All the prior partial judgments that have occurred throughout history are now poured out with unequaled fury. Look at verse 18. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. And what we now see is that the power of the creator is now directed to decreation. Uh, the cosmos is shaken and broken down. It's the end of the world as we know it. It is the final judgment. And with that, in verse 19, comes the fall of what is called Babylon. And we know, of course, when we read more widely in Revelation, that Babylon is symbolic. It's a symbolic name for human society lived in opposition to God. Verse 19. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. So what are we seeing in these seven plagues? These seven plagues paint a terrible picture of this final phase of history. God intensifies his judgments, leading up to his final judgment. The suffering and the affliction are truly awful. They are heartrending. And the question is this. Is there a sense in which we think this is a little extreme? Is there a question which arises in our minds? Is this really reasonable of God? to bring such torment and distress on the peoples of the world. And yet, if we are to understand God's judgment, we must first understand God's character. And that is what we're now going to move on to consider, moving from God's judgment to the character of God. And what we see here, firstly, is that God's character is holy and just. In verse 5, the angel says, you are just in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. God is the Holy One. It means that God is completely morally pure. It's not just that God is without sin. He actually hates sin. He has this righteous indignation against it. Such holiness is very hard for us to really get our minds around. It is hard for us to comprehend. Maybe it's helpful to think of it in this way. 
what is your attitude if you hear of somebody who has been sexually abusing a two-year-old child? What happens in your heart? Don't you feel a revulsion and a powerful Well, that is entirely right and appropriate. But imagine having that same response to all sin. Imagine hating with the same intensity at the sin of being selfish, the sin of being unloving, the sin of gossip, the sin of envy, the sin of lust. You see, as human beings, uh, we are very inconsistent. Uh, some sins do fill us with loathing and righteous anger, but others fly under the radar. We're actually quite accepting of them. Maybe we even like them. And that is why resisting them sometimes is very hard. But you see, God is completely different to us. God is 100% undiluted holiness. And unlike us, God hates all sin, and all sin arouses his righteous anger and his wrath. And not only is God holy, but he is also just. Look again at verse 7. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You see, the two go hand in hand. Uh, God's holiness means he hates sin and it arouses his anger. And God's justice mobilizes God to punish sin. God's justice moves him to judgment that is entirely appropriate and proportional. You see, the punishment with God always fits the crime. And we get a sense of this in verse 5, where those who have afflicted the church finally receive their due penalty. Uh, verse 5 again. You God, <clears throat> you, God, are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, as they deserve. Well, you may be wondering uh, why I have chosen this text for our Good Friday service. Well, the seven bowls of God's wrath point us to the future. They are the last plagues that culminate in God's final judgment. The seven bowls of God's wrath convey a sense of how awful that judgment will be. But the seven bowls don't just point us to the future. They also point us to the past. The term bowl and cup are both used synonymously in the Bible. They both refer to the outpouring of God's wrath. Uh, did you notice it in verse 19? Let me read it to you again. Uh, God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. 2,000 years ago, a man sweated blood at the prospect of drinking the cup of God's wrath. 
He prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And out of his love for us and his obedience to God's purposes, he turned not to the left or to the right. He continued on that awful dark road to the cross. And there on the cross, all the destructive rays of God's judgment were focused as through a magnifying glass onto him. And we hear the agony in his voice as he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore the sores on his body of the plagues. He bore the searing heat of the affliction of the plagues. He bore the parched throat of a water crisis of the plagues. He bore the economic loss of everything, even his robe, even the very basis for his life. You see, we all deserve these terrifying end-time judgments. For all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet on the cross, Christ bore them for us. He suffered God's awful judgment then, so that we need not suffer God's final judgment on that final day. You see, on the cross, we not only see God's holiness and his justice, but we also see God's love and his mercy. God is holy and just, but he is also loving and merciful. And therefore, if we don't understand God's character, we're never going to understand God's judgment. And if we don't understand God's judgment, we will never understand the cross. So we've seen the judgments of God. We've seen the character of God. Finally, let's see the response of humanity. How should we respond? Uh, firstly, uh, the refusal to repent. Uh, did you notice the repeated response of sinful humanity as it incurs these awful bowls of God's wrath? Uh, for example, verse 9. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. This is actually a repeated theme in chapter 16 of Revelation. A similar response occurs after the fifth bowl and the seventh bowl when they're poured out. Uh, you would think that people would be brought to their senses You'd think that they would plead with God for mercy, but sadly, not a word of it. People are doggedly hostile to God and his rule over them. And therefore, it calls us to be persistent in our prayers for them. You see, it is incumbent on us to plead with God, to soften the hearts. And therefore, it's an exhortation and encouragement don't give up praying for your family and your friends who don't yet trust in Christ. And of course, 
if you've not yet put your trust in Christ? Can you see the folly of delaying or resisting any longer? Because that day of God's final judgment will come. And of course, the wisest thing possible is to be ready for it. Embrace Christ as your saviour now, so that you will not face him as your judge then. So the first human response we see in this final section is the refusal to repent. And the second and last is the call to stay awake. Uh, The plagues and the bowls of wrath convey the reality of God's final judgment, but not the timing of it. And therefore the challenge is for his people, for those who are trusting in Christ, to live every day so that they are ready for it. Verse 15. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Let me close with a true story. One night, a woman who lived in a sleepy country village was in her bathroom getting ready for bed uh, when she heard a strange noise. She'd never heard anything like it her whole life. And it was rapidly becoming closer with a rising groan and howl, as if at any moment the noise would make the house explode like a kettle under pressure. The ground shook and she opened the frosted window. And even though it was nighttime, the sky was lit bright orange, as if it were daytime. And what looked like blue and white stars were visibly falling to the ground. She was a Christian lady, and her first thoughts were, this is it. This is the return of Christ. It was 7.03 p.m. on Wednesday, the 21st of December, 1988. And the village in which she lived was called Lockerbie, on the borders of Scotland. And she had just witnessed one of the worst terrorist aviation atrocities with the downing of Pan Am Flight 103. I've told you of this story once before uh, during our series in Habakkuk, but there is one part I left out. Uh, The woman was actually in the bath at the time. And the impulsive thought that went through her head was, as she thought it was the return of Christ, oh Lord, not now. I'm naked. Now, the point is not that we need to take shorter showers lest we be caught in the act, although that would be useful application for those households with teenagers, of course. Uh, Verse 15 is not speaking literally, but the principle is clear. If Christ were to return today and we were to stand before him, would we be in any way in any sense, ashamed of the way that we are living. It's an encouragement to keep living with perspective. It's an encouragement to keep being faithful in the small matters as well as in the large. It's an encouragement to seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness as the overarching priority of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this 
profound and quite shocking passage of scripture, which tells us of the reality, although not the timing, of your final judgments. I thank you for what we are also told about your character, which helps us make sense of that judgment, of your holy holiness and your justice, but also your love and your mercy. I thank you that it points us back to the cross and enables us to therefore be ready for that day through trusting in Christ. Help us, we pray, each one of us to be ready for that day through that heartfelt trust in Christ, a humble admission of our need before him, of forgiveness for all our sins. And may we then be galvanized to continue living as people with focus and perspective every day. Being mindful of that vivid picture of the shame of walking before people naked and therefore being driven in a really positive way uh, to live for Christ every day so that we not be, need not be ashamed on that final day when we stand before him. Amen.